water would be good. Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to open with the Akdamav de Ezra. I'm doing it in Hebrew. I can't read it in English. We're going to do it in Hebrew. I think you have the Hebrew at the back of the book. It may be a, a few words off. I'm not sure because there's different gursaot of the book. Um, but we'll have an idea of what it is that Harambam wants us to know here. It, it opens with that. It says, Amar Abraham Amhaber. Abraham, the author, says, I'm opening my speech. Urtuni, this is all poetic. And I want to elaborate. Because I need to establish a foundational point. Foundational issue. And that is, With the help of the one who brings low and raises high, which of course is another way of talking about God, I'm going to put out for you, thank you, 12 gates, 12 chapters, 12 prakim. And before I do that, I will say at the very beginning, Really, when you think about it, we're all animals. And there is no benefit of human beings over animals. Except for our exalted, wise soul. And that Harambam calls the Sechet, right? It's our consciousness. It's our capacity to have consciousness, self-awareness, reason, planning, the human prefrontal cortex, yeah, essentially. And that is recognizing that that is who we are as human beings and what makes us different from the animals. That soul will return to God, given to us by God. Return it, we return it to God at death. The point is that it should be returned after having come to know its creator and its maker. The whole point of life in the first place is to be put into a physical body so that there is capacity to study these things through effort and development. Right? The question is, well, I mean, you know, don't the angels know this stuff? Why do we have to come into a physical body in order to be able to know this stuff? Why? Because they don't learn. They're created with the information downloaded already. We come in to study. And our study is our own making. In other words, we create ourselves through our study. And that's the beauty of it. Right? That's the work. And to keep the mitzvot, of course. And much of this he's borrowing pesukim. I'm not going through all of them. And wisdom gives life to those who master it or those who own it. It is the source of life. Now, so what is the goal here? He says it explicitly right in the beginning, right? Like Michael pointed out. His goal here is to help you and me achieve a, 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 a essentially an experience of Olam Abba. When we return on a spiritual level, level to God, I'm not going into what Olam Abba is now, but when essentially in basic broad strokes, when we our Nishama returns to God on whatever level that happens outside of the physical existence, we return having achieved a creation of self through wisdom. Because it's the only difference that we have from the animals. That being so, we need to talk about wisdom. Yes? So his goal in talking about wisdom is not for the sake of talking about wisdom. His goal in talking about wisdom is for the sake of building us. And once we understand that, 
we understand there are tremendous amount, there's very various aspects of wisdom, every one of them are helpful, beneficial in some way, but it's important to know that there are gradations. In other words, there are value systems when it comes to knowledge. The reality is there are value systems when it comes to everything. There's no such thing as all things equal, not even yourselves. Because if it weren't for the fact that some things are more important than others, you would never think, you know something, I think I'd like to be better. You'd be fine with how you are right now without any questions. We know, and the reason I'm pointing it out that way is because otherwise, uh, for you to recognize that inherently means that we come into this world inherently believing, inherently knowing that there is a value system in life. And so what the Ibn Ezra is saying is it is so too with wisdom. There are more important and less important things to know. And not only more important, less important, there are hierarchies. In other words, there are prerequisite elements of knowledge that are important to know before understanding or engaging in higher levels of knowledge. So one must, if one wishes to study a very high level of knowledge, Know the prerequisites. Do not attempt to study higher levels without the prerequisites. Which again, Harambam says extremely uh, explicitly and, and, and uh, eloquently at the opening of the Mishneh Torah. It goes through it in, in, in much detail. So he says it's like a ladder, right? Which he borrows, of course, again. These are all psukim that he's borrowing because he was a man of the Mikra. And uh, you, you go up the levels. You go up the levels. You start and there's a gradation. Praised is the one. Well, really, ashre does not mean praised. It's a very bad translation of the word ashre. Ashre comes from ashur. Ashur means well, means stable, established. Ashre means a person is well established. They are sturdy, is the person, right? That's really what it means. Sturdy, well-balanced, well-seated is a person whose eyes are opened and hearts are broadened to be able to know these things. They can flow to God. They can flow, right? This is an, I love that, that language, right? This is, he uses the flow concept. And he reaches the good in the end. By the way, if you ever seen Sfaradi Hachamim finish their names and their, their, they'll sign their names, they say Samichtet. They do this like little uh, abbreviation at the end. So they'll sign their name and then after that Samichtet. And everybody thinks that stands for Sfaradi Tahor. But it's not. It's not Sfaradi Tahor. There's various ideas of what it stands for. It's different people say different things. Hacham Ovadiyah told me it stands for Safetav, which means in Aramaic, Sofotov. He should have a good end. So it's a little tefillah. Right? It's a little prayer in two, two letters. And that's what he's saying, right? You should get to the good in the end. Okay. Yes, shall we continue? There are intellectuals among the intelligentsia of Israel, of the Jewish people. Their whole goal is in order to be able to keep our Masoret. 
Amasort essentially means our traditional texts. They want to keep that as their central study intact. And so they, so they really, so they really pay tremendous attention to the details of the text. And that includes, you know, the, the, uh, the, uh, what do you call it? The acronyms that they give, you know, for us to be able to remember lists and things, uh, you know, how many, how many, uh, uh, you know, nations were in the land of Canaan, right? So you have the Prizi, the Ibuxi, you know, they would give acronyms for these things and remember them. Kol Satum Patuah, all of the, the opening and closing paragraphs to, you know, how it is that they're supposed to be graphically set out in the Torah. Kriuchtiv, all of the words that are written one way, but read a different way. Haser Viater, the spellings of the words, some have the Vav in the Yud, some don't have the Vav in the Yud. A meticulous knowledge of all of this. Of course, they remember all the big and small letters, like the small Aleph and Vaikra, and yeah, so on and so forth. And there are certain letters that they, they are not written on the line. There's a Misorah that we have tradition that they should be written raised above a letter in a word should be written raised. There's words that have little dots on top. Right? That you remember. Not only that, they like to know how many Pesukim in every book, how many words in every book, how many letters in every book. I says, look, look, the truth of the matter is, is there's merit to doing this, you know, that they spend time doing this. We need somebody to do it. Why? Because by, by way of them doing this, they're keeping the walls of the city intact. It's another way of saying they're keeping the structure Intact, yeah. Now the structure, of course, is important, but it's the structure; it's not the substance. And so he says, you know, this would be similar to. It's true that Bavuram, because of their meticulous work, I mean, our core texts have essentially remained throughout the generations. Uh, Untouched, they 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 they're intact, and we have them all consistently throughout all the generations because they've been so meticulously careful about these these details. Now, it's good for you to know a person who wants to be a maskil, who wants to be really intelligent and to be able to have genuine knowledge. It's good to have an awareness of what they do. Good to kind of have an idea of of, of all of this stuff. Um, a little bit. You should pay attention to understand the ta'amim means the, how to understand the reading of the sfarim based on what it is that they teach us, right? How a word is supposed to be read, where the words are, how they're supposed to be pronounced, and so on and so forth, all of that kind of stuff. Now, ketevot, why? Because the words, kikviot, the words are like bodies. Here when he says ta'amim, he doesn't mean the singing. Right? Tamim means the meaning, right? Tamim and the meaning is the meaning of the words. The meaning is like the soul. So you could read any word and understand its meaning in various nuanced ways, right? But that's really what our goal is. The goal is not the word as much as the meaning of the word. The meaning is everything. The word is meant to hold the meaning as a body holds the soul. But don't miss the meaning for the body. Yeah, so essentially what he said. 
And so he says, I mean, you know, if you don't understand the meaning, the whole thing, the whole endeavor is, is meaningless. What do we need to, you know, to keep a whole bunch of words together? You know, not necessary. It's very important to recognize there's a few times that Eben Ezra points this out in various ways in this particular uh, chapter, right? One of them was what you what, was what you pointed out, right? That 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 uh, the importance is the meaning and not the specific word that's used. And Harambam writes that not with regards to the Mikra, although uh, it's not clear that Harambam would disagree with Eben Ezra. He writes that when he writes a letter to Rabbi Avadiyah Ger. Rabbi Avadiyah Ger writes to Harambam. He was a Ger, he spoke Arabic, and he converted to Judaism. And he was writing to Harambam that he wanted Harambam to write the Mishneh Torah in Arabic. Because all the other books he could read, but he couldn't read the Mishneh Torah because he didn't understand the Hebrew. And so Harambam said, he wrote this whole letter. It's, it's unbelievable because usually when Harambam writes back to people, you know, they didn't have paper, okay? It's very important to understand it wasn't like, you know, he took like that nice ream of paper and like picked, you know, he, he would oftentimes write his answers to questions on the back of the paper that the question was sent on because he didn't have, didn't have paper. Very, very small. You read the length of the, of the Teshubah, the answer that he writes there, it's unbelievable. Why? Because it says, and Harambam didn't want Shalom that this ger should consider that Harambam was not caring for him and treating him well. And so he writes to him profusely. I mean, he writes him with tremendous love and tremendous encouragement. And what he says to him in the middle is, the words are not important. The meaning is. And that's what the goal is in all of learning, is to be able to understand. So if you understand it in different words, you understand different words. If somebody can read it to you and translate it to you, it's not a big deal. Just get the, the, the knowledge down. That's the important thing. So he's saying, look, I'll give you an example. It's like if you have a medical book and you spend so much time with the medical book to count the letters and words of the medical book so that you make sure that it's all there. Now, it's, it's important to realize this doesn't sound, it may sound crazy. It's not as crazy as it sounds. Why would somebody count the words of a medical book? You'll see in the Mishneh Torah, Rambam often when he gives lists, he tells you, and these are 24 things. Why does he do that? I don't know how to count. Because he, was, he didn't trust the publishers. And so whenever he had a list of things that he wanted to make sure that the list remained intact, he would say, here are 24 things. So you better realize you have 23. Somebody made a mistake, right? You got to figure that out. So he said, like, if you have a medical book and you have people that are counting the pages, and counting the, 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 the letters and words and so on and so forth. That may be valuable for what? To make sure that you have a full, intact medical book. But it will not help you heal people. You need to study the medicine in order to be able to heal people. And that's what he's saying about the Torah. So he's saying very clearly over here, there are not esoteric elements to the letters per se. Right? And the reason why Sefer Torah needs to be written so, so carefully is because the Hachamim wanted to ensure that the text was uniform and clear and that nobody touched it. And that's why they made it sacred. Don't mess with this. It has to be in this way, in this form, in these paragraphs and so on and so forth. Why? Because it's the source text. You don't want the source text to be corrupted. So very important. 
So he said, look, I mean, I hate to say it. He didn't say it. He says, look, the reality is, is that a person who spends only, uh, all of their time studying only this is like a camel carrying meshi. Meshi is, is silk. There are two girsaot in the Hebrew. Some have meshi, which is silk. Some have masui, which is just a burden. Right? So it's either one or another. It's nice to say meshi because meshi is, uh, the silk is expensive and valuable. Right? So it's not that you're carrying any burden. They're carrying a very valuable, expensive burden. But at the end of the day, the silk doesn't help the camel and the camel doesn't help the silk. And so it's important to be able to recognize that that is absolutely not the goal of wisdom. It's good, it's valuable as a service, it's important to understand what it is doing, but if your interest is to know, to be aware, to be wise, don't get stuck. Don't get stuck. Questions? Okay, next. Now, there are other people who uh, pay a tremendous amount of time on grammar in Lashona Kodesh, right? To be able to understand the, the, the language of Lashona Kodesh. Like what? To know the various binyanim, uh, the various ways that we conjugate, and tenses, and so on. To know the letters that are help letters. What are misharitim? It means the suffixes and prefixes of, of letters. Hashorashim, to know the, the roots of the words. Hashemot, are nouns, to know the nouns. Pe'alim, to know the verbs. Omdim biotzim, both uh, active verbs and passive verbs. Shem kol derachim rabim. I mean, look, there's a lot of knowledge in that. You've got to spend a lot of time studying that in order to be able to know. Well, it's true. Otiyot te'amim ve'amilot, also there's letters that give reasons, right? So there's the bet, kaf, shin, lamid letters that tell you it's, is it in, to, with, yeah, and of course there are words like that too, like et and aim and so on, right? All of those. And also adverbs and how it is that we understand the nature of a verb. It is really a splendid wisdom. I mean, you know, it's really important to be able to have proficiency in the language. Because a person who has proficiency in grammar knows how to talk. You can speak both in prose and poetry, as both are very necessary if you're a wise individual. Because there are things that you can say in poetry that you simply cannot say in prose. And if you don't know how to write poetry, then you are encumbered in your capacity to express your ideas. Because there are things that in prose you would need to write pages and pages and pages and pages and maybe get it out there. Whereas in poetry, you can write a few lines and uh, it's there, you mine it. And there are issues with prose. If you don't say what you what you want, right? You don't say what you mean and mean what you say. It's a mess. So grammar is important, right? He's saying that it's important. Now, gam ta'amim rabim mefurashim medirech halashon. Not only that, understanding grammar helps you to understand what's being said, of course. Because when you know grammar, it doesn't just help you to write, you to speak, but you can also read and understand in ways that if you didn't know it, you wouldn't necessarily recognize differences. For example, he says, and it will help you understand mitzvot, right? Like so it says, for example, you should love to your re'acha, right? He says, notice, it doesn't say which is not necessarily a wrong way to say something because we say, et Adonai 
the two are not the same, says Rebbe. What's the difference? He says, well, is what you do to your friend that is loving. So it's what you do to that person. As you are loving the object. And it has much more to do with feeling than action. This is the Ibn Ezra. I'm not saying that this is the explanation. This is how Ibn Ezra is explaining it. Right? So Ibn Ezra is saying there's a very big difference between saying and saying is a direct love of the object. Le is doing something out of love for the individual. And that's why the le ends with kamocha, because I have a reference. Well, what do I do for me, and how do I treat me? And therefore, in the halakha, Rambam writes, you know, what, what does it mean, how do you treat your money? Do that to your friend. How do you speak about it? Do that to your friend. How do you treat your property? Do that to your friend. And so on and so forth. Right? I think that there's an issue with this. I'm not going to go into it now, because my job tonight is to explain the Ibn Ezra. Right? And that's what the Ibn Ezra says about it. He says, look, and don't ask me about it hager. Right, love the convert, which Hachamim do say is equated to but that's only in terms of being able to hold it a very high high regard, right? Loving the convert. He says that you have to understand contextually. It's the same as you're supposed to do things that are good for the ger, but the reason he uses it over there is because it's contextual. Because in the Pasuk before it says what you're supposed to do to the ger. You're supposed to give him bread and, 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 uh, and clothing and so on, because oftentimes the ger is leaving everything that they have and coming into a society in which they don't have anything and they're, they're strangers. Now he says, This too is, is important to learn. It's good. It's good to learn. Just don't waste your life with it. Use it as a tool. Know it enough so that it serves you. Don't serve it. Essentially is what the Venezuela is saying. And, you know, I could suggest some, some uh, books for you on this. He says, a uh, good thing to do is to read Sefer Biudam Dagdek. Another way, another way it was known as Biudah Huge. The Venezuela loved this man. Venezuela loved him. He thought he was the greatest, most brilliant grammarian that there was in Lashon Kodesh. He was the one who basically brought out the idea that Hebrew words have three-letter roots. Because there was argument. There still is. It's not so substantial, but there's argument. Are there two-letter roots or three-letter roots? He insisted that the three-letter roots. And the Ebenezer thought that was like the best thing since sliced bread. You know, he thought it was great. So read his books, he says. Also, Sefer Rabbi Merinus. Rabbi Merinus is a, another way, it's the Aramaic for Ibn Janah. Yeah, Marwan. Marwan was Marwan Ibn Janah. So he said, read the books of Ibn Janah, the Shalashim, and so on. And there is uh, 22 books of Rabbi Shmuel Nagid, which we do not have. They don't exist in our hands anymore today. Yeah, some speculate that it wasn't 22 books, but 22 chapters. Yeah, whatever it is, we don't have it anymore today. These kinds of things that Shulmo said, write as many books as you can, right? Why? Because you know, there's so much to talk about and bring out and so on and so forth. And so it helps the, it helps the, the, uh, the learner. Questions? Yes. 
from, from, from what it's said so far, it seems like a relatively individualistic account. So every person is, you know, you don't spend time doing just this, don't spend time doing just this. But what, what would you say in response to the idea of positing that, let's say we take five people, we tell four of those people, you're going to spend your entire life studying this to the highest level possible. Mm. And then the fifth person, each of the four people can teach him. Right. Because what this seems to be proposing is that every Jew should become sort of relatively well acquainted with a wide variety of wisdoms. Mm-hmm. And sort of to use sort of a classic, uh, almost a cliche, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. So how... You're saying, where do we get specialists in the system? Yes. Yeah. So look, if we use, if, which is a very good question. I thank you for asking the question. If we use the Ibn Ezra's uh, scale, essentially, right, his, his, his measure, what we need to ask is what, if you're going to be a specialist in grammar, and that is going to be your life, yeah, then something about that needs to be what it is that develops you as a human being. It's very, very important to understand. And it is very possible that that is possible. Right? In other words, it's possible that being a grammarian as a specialist will develop the individual. Yeah? The Ibn Ezra would suggest, listen, you need to know other things yeah, to, to the person that's going to be a specialist. But he's talking, and we're going to see at the end, he is talking to the general population. And the way that we know he is talking to the general population is because he says, you don't really need to learn Nizikin. We'll see that later. Right? He goes, you don't need to learn every Masechet. And even in the Halachot that you learn, you don't need all Halachot. You need to know what you need to know. That's what you need to do. And in that, you develop yourself. There will be people, he says, that are going to be masters of Nezikin. And that's great. We need them. But it's going to be one in a hundred. You know, you'll have a, okay, so they'll do that and we'll have them do that for us. <laughs> yeah. And that will be his path in life, and hopefully he'll be able to develop that path in life. It is essential regardless that whether you are a specialist or not, that what you are doing is not just an intellectual endeavor, that it is developing oneself. And it is very likely that it's possible to do that. What he's suggesting here is a holistic, well-rounded way of learning for the general population. Yeah? There's also people who love studying Tanakh. And that's what they do. Gam Tirgumam, they do it also with, with some uh, Tirgum, right? With maybe Onklos or some other Tirgumim in Aramaic. Now they believe, right? They choose this specialty because they believe. And this is why it's important also as an, an added answer to your question. Why is he saying what they think when they study? Because he's disqualifying inappropriate uh, motivations to the study, right? So he's saying most people, their motivation of studying is this. He's saying when they study Tanakh, their motivation is Oh, sorry. They believe that by studying the sacred text alone, they will reach the highest level of spirituality because it's the sacred text. Who's he talking about over here? He's digging. He's, this is a dig. The Karayim, of course. Now, of course, it's true that the Torah is the source of life. I'm not, not saying that. He is so called the mitzvot. And of course, the scripture 
is the foundation for all of our mitzvot. Also, no question about that. It's just impossible to know how to do even one mitzvah from studying only the text of the Torah. It's impossible. If you do not have the accepted interpretations of the text, and of course, every, every text requires interpretation. The question is, what is the accepted interpretation of this particular text? For example, it says with regards to Shabbat, you are not to do any melacha, whatever melacha is. We're not getting into that now either. Who's going to tell us what melacha is? I mean, are there broad principles of melachot? Are there derivatives of those melachot? How do we, like, how, who's going to decide that? Is it just going to be every each man and woman for themselves? Umidata sukkah, I mean, you know, what's the measurement of a sukkah? What is a sukkah, for goodness sakes? This, interestingly, is not in the translation. I had a look at it. And when the Torah says, that you're not supposed to overcharge how much is overcharging? <laughs> like, does that mean I can't make a profit? Well, how much is too much? There has to be some kind of guidelines over there. Hakelal, the principle is, all of the mitzvot require an accepted, received, passed, passed down through generations as our accepted understanding of, of explanation. How do we read this text? That's perfectly understandable and acceptable. Of course, there are ways with the, that we read this text. I mentioned this many times. You know, when, when the internet first started, I hate that I'm saying that, but in case when the internet first started, I and we first, you know, were able to start looking on websites. I stumbled onto the Vatican's website, which tells you something, because they had a website right at the first, like right at the beginning. And you know, I'm looking at the Vatican, and there and there's a place on the site. I mean, I haven't been there since, so I don't know what it's like now. But there's a place on the site where it has scripture, Old Testament. And I look at the Old Testament pesukim, which I know the pesukim. I'm reading it, and I'm looking at the commentary. And I'm like, this is not a commentary. This is not how we understand these pesukim. Now go argue. There is no argument. I mean, you could you could make all kinds of rhetorical arguments that you want, but at the end of the, the day, you remove something from its context. You can put whatever context you want, and it will change the meaning, which is what we do to people's words all the time. That's why we hate when people say things that we say out of context, because you can't say I didn't say that. No, I said that. Well, that's it. Game over. Yeah. What's your question? Um, in terms of a practical kind of approach, if you need one, if, if you're studying one thing. And you speak a little bit loudly than you normally would because there are people that yeah, can. In terms of a practical approach to to studying, um, if you need to know what, if you're learning one one safer and then you you need to know another safer, like you, you can't learn two things at a time. Or um, what's the question here? You, in um, you. In order to understand one text, you need to understand another text. But if you're learning text A and you haven't let, learned text B, how are you 
So that's a good. So essentially, if I understand your question, what you're saying is it's very possible and often happens that in order to be able to understand one text, you need to reference another text to be able to have a full understanding of it, which is true. But that's also a level of understanding. Right. So what I need to do first is to incorporate the text. Right. I need to be able to download the text. And until I have the text, I can't start delving into the second level of understanding any deeper meaning of it. So it's interesting you say that because we'll get we'll get to this in a minute because <laughs> the Ibn Ezra here discourages studying Tanakh. And you're gonna think I'm crazy, right? Because, but but he does. I mean, if you peel it away, at the end of the day, really the Ibn Ezra discourages studying Tanakh qua Tanakh. Because even if you look at the Ibn Ezra's Perush on Tanakh, so much of it is grammatical. Right? So much of it he's telling you what the words mean. So much of it. And why is he discouraging that? Because in his time, they were so poor with regards to Tanakh and its explanations. In other words, in the Ibn Ezra's time, you had the text. Good luck. We don't have that anymore today. Half of the work is done for us. So it's a very different experience for us to study Tanakh than it was for anybody in his day to study Tanakh. A completely different experience. Yeah? And the reason why is because all of that work has already been done for us. And what they used to do was just get the data. Now that you have the data, let's work with the data and try and understand. So there are levels and layers to how it is that the, the information needs to be brought in. And all he's saying is don't get stuck. That's his mantra. Right? Don't get stuck. Yeah. So was Ibn Ezra concerned that people would come up with erroneous interpretations of things in Tanakh? They didn't have a He wasn't as con- well, let's see what he's con- he's gonna say what he's concerned. He's gonna see what he's concerned. Okay. Um so he says, look, we don't know how to do the mitzvot without any interpretation of Tarash about this. That's very, very important. Again, this is all against the Karaim essentially. I'm not going also, who's gonna know about you know it says that we have to have holidays, we have to have uh, festivals. Right? And these festivals need to essentially be based on the moon, which we just read in the parasha this week. Yeah, our Hodashim, our monthly, our, our uh, lunar Hodashim. Well, good luck with that. I mean, who knows anything about that? When we talk about the new moon, what exactly? I mean, we're supposed to approximate? Or Mitukan, we're supposed to specifically carefully calculate. Or we're just supposed to watch and wait for it and see it and manage it that way by vision. And so if it's the case that we should look and watch where in the sky. I mean, what am I supposed to be looking for? On which side of the sky, at what point of the sky, and so on. Not to mention what longitudinal and latitudinal uh, coordinates am I supposed to do this at? Because depending on where you are on the globe, it's going to be different. I mean, for goodness sakes, he's saying, again, oh, again, a question of where it is that it's supposed to be. I mean, everybody knows. He goes, look, I'll, I'll let you know. Between Yerushalayim and this island. Which island was talking about? That's the only reason I think it's exciting to read. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, yeah, the Ibn Ezra died in this. He wrote this in English at the end of his life. Ibn Ezra, of course he was a Sfaradi, 
but he he lived a long life. He lived, I think, 77, 78 years. He was, he was born in 1067. He died 30 years after Harambam was born, right? Harambam was 30 years old. Not likely that they knew each other. And he traveled all around Europe. He was destitute. He had no money. His wife died. He, he was alone. His son left him. And many believe converted to Islam. The Ibn Ezra lived a very, very difficult life. He was alone. He was destitute. But he was brilliant. And he used to say, he says, if I was a candle maker, it would never get dark. If I made shrouds for a living, nobody would die. <laughs> that, was his, that was his thing. Was, I'm so poor that no matter what it is I do, I won't be able to make anything. So he was in England. He was in England before the expulsion, obviously. So he says, look, everybody knows. Um, where am I? He says about four hours different. Obviously, we're not talking about clock, right? We're talking about how it is that the sun rises and sets. And what six o'clock is light in Jerusalem, maybe six o'clock dark here. Right? We find that's not exactly right. So usually the average is about two and a half hours, sometimes three. Yeah, in terms of the sun, sun rising and setting. Right? We know this from astronomical science. Now it's true that there are also many mitzvot that we cannot just know directly from the Torah. We need to be able to use just some kind of understanding. I mean, we would have to figure out what it is that it means, like this this line, that you should circumcise the foreskin of your hearts. What on earth is that? I'll tell you though, it is good to know the Makra. It is good to know. I mean, there are some things that you can get out of it that can help us explain mitzvot, actually, here and there. Right? There's a few things in the Makra that will help us explain mitzvot. Like, for example, there's a pasuk that says, Don't eat on the blood. What does that mean? Don't eat on the blood. It says, Thankfully, we can figure out what that means from the story in uh, in uh, Shmuel with uh, Shaul Amelech. So Shaul Amelech went to war with the Pelishtim. How did you come out? Came out of war. Shaul, Shaul went to war with the Pelishtim as he often did. And in this particular war, uh, they were famished because he said Moses could eat them. So they were famished. And they ended up getting cattle and sheep and so on from the spoils of war. And people were just slaughtering and eating. And it says in the Pasuk in Shemuel, Achlu al Hadam. They ate on the blood, right? They ate over the blood. And what does it mean? There, Shaul said, and they went and told Shaul, they said, um, Your Majesty, there are people eating on the blood over there. You maybe do something. And he stopped everybody from eating because they weren't paying attention because they were simply slaughtering and eating. Not, whatever, they're allowed to eat. Uh, he said, Don't you dare do such a sin. First, you have to throw the blood on the Mizbeah, and then you can eat. Right? Now, it's not a bit of Mikdash. They made a Korban, a Mizbeah. And so now it is. It's explicit. Now we know what Lotokhuladah means. Shaul Amir for us. Right? What it means is don't eat without putting Dham on the Mizbeah. Fine. So we got that. Great. It says children should not die because of their fathers. So we have an explicit story in the Nevi'im that tells us Amatziah was king. His father, Yoash, was assassinated. Amatziah took revenge on the assassination of his father and killed the people that killed his father, but not their kids. 
which was very prevalent at the time. I mean, you don't leave any of the, of the kids alive. They'll, they'll just come, some more bad stuff to come and get you. No, he didn't. How do we know that's loyim to Because it says in the Pasuk, in the Navi, as it says in the book of Moshe, okay, so it's good. So there's great stuff in that that we can learn the meaning of a mitzvah here and there, you know, in the, in the Mikra. But let's be honest, says the Ibn Ezra. It's a tremendous amount of effort with very little reward. And so he says, What you get out of it is minuscule compared to the effort that you need to put in. So he says, Look, to know the names of the cities of Israel, you know, you need to know the names of all the Shofetim, the names of all the kings. You need to know all of the coordinates of the first Beit HaMikdash and the one that they're going to build and the words of the Nevi'im. What are you doing with all of that? Okay, look it up. <laughs> look it up, essentially, is what the, what the Ibn Ezra is saying. Okay? Now, it's true, some of the prophecies tell us futures that we could figure out, right? That we can have an idea of what is it they're saying. That might be helpful. But then there are others in the Gashishka Ivrim Kir. I mean, we others that you know we're blind like a blind person trying to find his way against the wall. You know, how do I get out of here? And everybody has the whole array of explanations as to what these things mean. We have no idea. The Benezza saying, don't spend a lot of time. Which is interesting. I don't think that we hold this today. But again, I'm saying that we don't hold this today because we don't have to deal with it the way that they had to. There's a tremendous amount of cumulative knowledge that we have that helps us study. Yeah. It's true. We knew all of the meaning of Sefer Teilim. Even though, yes, it was said by Ruach HaKodesh, that doesn't tell us anything about the future. So read the, the Tehillim when you want to praise God, but otherwise, what do you study? Says the Ibn Ezra. Yeah? Again, I don't think that this is so today, but that's me. And so to Iyov and Sifre Shalomov and Megidot Ra'izra, so to Iyov and the books of Shalomo, which is Shirishirim and all that. Okay, it's not something that you need to spend all of your time on. And don't think that you can figure out when the Mashiach is coming by studying the book of Daniel, because even he didn't know, says Ibn Ezra. And that's how I explained it when I made my peruch on the book. Yeah, he says, He said, look, if we were to spend all of our days and nights studying this stuff, and this is his important thing, he keeps going back to it. You could spend your entire life studying the Tanakh and you will not know one mitzvah to achieve Olam with. You won't necessarily know how to live. Now it's true that in the stories there's a great deal to learn. There's no question about it. But of course you can interpret the stories in any number of ways. And more often than not, you need somebody who's really thought about these stories to explain them to us in like really meaningful life applicable ways. So that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm trying to get you to Alam Abba. I'm trying to bring you into in, in, in exalted, uh, uh, higher level of living. 
that brings you into your, into your consciousness and intellect and not down or not stagnant. And these things are great, but they aren't going to bring you there if you are the one left to do the work on your own. Al-Ken Amru Kadmonenu, and this is very important. The Benezer does this all the time. He never calls Chazal Chazal. He never says Hachamin. He always says Kedamenu, those who came before us. <laughs> he, doesn't say, he doesn't speak them any, any, in any uh, other way. So he does this in the Perusha Torah also. He says Kadmonenu, the ones who came before us. That's why they said about the study of Mikra alone, without any Torah Shabbat, it's a valuable uh, asset, but also not. Because it doesn't really do everything for you. Okay. And this he says explicitly. He goes, look, if you are studying the Ketuvim, it's good to pay attention to the grammar. Because it's a way that you'll be able to understand the grammar. I had this when I was in rabbi school. Uh, for a few semesters, we studied with Professor Haim Tawil, Sefer Amos. He chose Amos because it's filled with a whole bunch of interesting words and forms and so on. I had no idea what was going on in the book because all we were looking at, we would do literally every week, we'd go take another pasuk and just pull apart the words of Sefer Amos. Yeah? And then he did that with the Parashat HaShavua also. He did that with and we had to, to get used to just knowing what's the binyan, how is it built, what's the what's the shorish, and so on and so on. So it's a goodly mood. But if that's all I had, if that was my shiur in Tanakh, right? Big problem. Okay. Right? It's from the book that you end up getting Yesod Torah Vesod Mora, which of course is the title of this book. Even though the uh, the targum is not entirely pshat, it's also good to learn. He says, right? Obviously, his interest is in pshat. He likes explanations in the crowd pshat. Good. Uh, how are we with the? Where are we with time? Okay. I don't know. Yes. Did the Ibn Azra see any intrinsic value in the words of? You know, in words of Ruach HaKadosh or Nebuah, like for example, Nevim Oktuvim, like that there's a spiritual way of getting close to Hashem just by reading the... He never says anything like that. So does Haramban? It's not clear. It's not clear. It's not clear. It doesn't seem so. It doesn't seem so. In other words, you don't find in Haramban... Uh, anywhere that he says that, for example, the sitting and reading of the words of the Torah cleanses your soul or lifts your soul. What he does say is you need to learn it. The obligation Talmud Torah, Hilchot Talmud Torah is, is that you have to study the Pesukim and the Pesukim have an effect on you, but not necessarily in the esoteric way that we think. How do I know that? How do I know that, Eli? How do I know that? I know that because Harambam says the following halacha. He says that there is a mitzvah. What? No. He says that there is a mitzvah to teach your children Torah. And what do you need to teach your children? The Pesukim. When do you need to teach your children? At what point? Who knows? Tell me. When they can speak. From the time that a child begins to speak, you have to teach them Torah Shebechtav. You have to teach them Pesukim. Now, when a child is, is about two years old or so, more or less, no? 
yeah, child starts to speak, then he can tell him, repeat after me, right? He may say it in a cute little accent, you know, a little baby accent, but you have to start. So you would think that the child, you know, at that point doesn't really know what you're saying. Whatever psukim you teach a child, he doesn't necessarily know what you're saying. And yet, astonishingly, the halakha is that you have to teach the first two pizukim in a very specific order. Why should it make a difference? What, what order is? And the truth of the matter is, after those two pizukim, it doesn't make a difference what order. You can teach the pizukim in any order that you want. The minhag was to teach Sefer Vaikra. Yavo teorim v'askubutaro. But that was just minhag. That wasn't halakha l'masih. You could teach them any pasuk, anywhere, in any order. It wasn't important. Why? Because they don't understand. The important thing is like the Ibn Ezra is saying, that they have the kilim, right? That they have the words. They have the pesukim in their, in their head. And so you would teach them, so they repeat it, and they would have the pesukim as part of them. But for some reason, you needed to teach them the first two pesukim in a very specific order. And that is Torah Tzivalanu Moshe and Shema Yisrael. And not in another way. And that's halakha. And that tells me something. Tells me that the manner that those pisukim go into the child, even though they are not cognitive and intellectual, they imprint the child in a certain way. So it may be subconscious, it may be unconscious, but that's important. That's all I can say, right? Harabana say because in that way it cleanses the child's soul. Doesn't say anything like that. He just says they need to go in this way. That's it. Yeah, that's all. That's Allah. All right. Yes, That's amazing. Like you go back to the to the 11th century, and this is still it was like it says there are some people that don't do don't bother with any of this stuff. They don't learn the words. They don't study the grammar. They don't study Tanakh. They don't do any of that stuff. They just go straight for the Gemara, straight to the Talmud. From the time that they're little, young, these next three words are very important because in these next three words, very elegantly, the Ben Ezra tells you what the Talmud is. And what is the Talmud? That's what it is. It explains the Mishnah. And that's what they do. Now you should also know that there are there's many ways that people approach the Talmud. There's many ways people study Talmud. And he says, interestingly, they're all good. They all have their value. They all have their reasons for how it is that people study. He's not here talking about methodology. Because he explains it after. He, he, he unpacks it. He was like, for example, he, he does that later on. You'll see it in the, a little bit later. He talks about it. What, what do people do? get out of their study. In other words, what is their aim of study? Some people study in order to study the Midrash. Some people study in order to know the Halakha. Some people study in order to... Okay? So he goes, look, why is Talmud important? He says, very simple. Talmud teaches us how to do the mitzvot. It tells us the Halakha. Remember, this was before the Mishneh Torah. All we had was the Talmud. So this is very important. Talmud Again, he doesn't just say how to do the mitzvot, he borrows the pasuk. Mitzvot that you do, vahai bahim. You live by them. The mitzvot create your life. They enliven your life. They provide for you a life that is, is affected by these behaviors and these actions that consciously, subconsciously, unconsciously, subliminally, what have you, affect you and your thinking. 
and how you relate to the world. And they help us. They lift us. And that's very, very important to understand because there's so much that we come into this world downloaded in our heads. There's a whole bunch that we come in downloaded. We are not tabula rasa. There are, there are natural fears that we have as human beings. There are natural ambitions that we have as human beings. There's a whole bunch of stuff that over, over hundreds of thousands of years of development, we come in not uh, blank, out of the box. And mitzvot speak to that. That's why Hachamim say, it's very important to understand. That's why Hachamim say, for 26 generations, Derech Eretz preceded Torah. There is nowhere that it says Derech Eretz Kadma Torah. That's we're just we're just like shortening that line. But why is it saying that? Why are you saying 26 generations? Derech Eretz. What's Derech Eretz? Literally, the way of the world, the way of the earth. How do human beings behave? How do human beings organize themselves? How do human beings interact with other animals? How do human beings deal with their deficits, deficiencies, their needs for energy, and so on and so forth? How do they deal with disputes and power hierarchies and so on, which are as old as time, right? You know, all you have to do is like look at any basic mammalian, uh, you know, system, and you realize that there's the alpha dog or the top uh, gorilla or whatever it is. That's the way that we are set up to deal with ourselves. If there isn't such a context, to what is Torah speaking? Torah is speaking to that and saying, this is how you deal with all of this stuff, given this context that I'm speaking to, that I'm, I'm inheriting and having. You follow? Extremely important. And that's why he's saying, you do the mitzvot b'haybay. It addresses all of those aspects of life on many levels. Now, I mean, if you're a big Talmudist, you should not know the mikra. You need to know the Mikra. Because guess what they do in the Talmud? They quote Pesukim. And if you don't know where the Pesukim come from, that's a problem. Also, if you don't know what they mean, it's a problem. Remember that the old Gemarot in the Ibn Ezra's time didn't have that nice little margin on the top of the page. They had like a little footnote that told you, oh, this is from this book. Right? No, they didn't have that. So he says, look, I mean, if you don't know the Mikra, <laughs> because whenever the, the Talmud says, as it says, and it quotes a Pasuk, you're not going to know where it comes from. Not only that, you will not know because you didn't actually study the meaning of the Pasuk in its context, whether the explanation that they give is the simple explanation, right, the basic explanation, or are they making some kind of uh, exposition on it and developing it further? Are they simply using it as a signpost for something that they're generating, a law that they're generating, and they want to use a, a scriptural source to be able to enhance it? No, you have no idea. Why? Because you never studied the Mikra. And you need to be able to study the Mikra in order to understand Talmud appropriately. And that still holds true today, even with the footnotes. Right? And that's why some people say that the uh, the uh, the Chumash or the, the Mikra is the Perush of Akadosh Baruch Hu on the Shas. Because that's the only place that anybody ever experiences those Pesukim. Right? They develop ideas through their intellect and they put it forward in the Talmud. Right? They, they, they show you how it is they think through 
and unpack ideas. And when the Hachamim quote a Pasuk, you better believe that if they're writing a Pasuk and saying, this is what it means, and this is the simple meaning, or, you know, it's not a Darash, they knew the meaning. I mean, they had better understanding of the Mikra than anybody that came after them. And that's not just because they were, they were you know, esoteric beings, right? It was just they, this was what they did. This was like their stuff. That's what they did. And if a person never studied the Mikra, they don't know how to understand the Pasuk. Simple as that. You also need to be able, again, know the grammar. You have to be able to understand how it is that they're reading the Pasuk in the Gemara, because by the way that they read, you will learn tactics. It's not just knowing the specific explanation. You'll also get used to understanding how they read how they think. And if you begin to know how they read and how they think, because they were hachamim gedolim bechol they were massive intellects and, and tremendously wise in all areas of wisdom. If you don't get to understand how they think, you will only know what it is that they tell you explicitly. But you will never be able to learn to start thinking in that way, which is also an extremely valuable reason for learning Talmud. There's certain things that uh, you will never really understand in the Talmud if you, if you don't broaden your knowledge. I'm not going to go through the details of this because it's all astronomical. It was all about astronomy. Yeah? So good luck. Enjoy. Right? Have, have, have fun after class. And not only that, I'm not doing that simply just to skip it. Right? The majority of what it is that the Ibn Ezra is bringing over here, uh, it doesn't function today. Because Deben Ezra didn't even know that the sun didn't move. So it's important, right? This is pre-Copernican. So the maths worked. They were extremely complicated. But a, year, a kid in year two today knows in basic understanding how it is that the solar system works than they did. Now, of course, they were able to calculate in ways that a kid in year two would never even begin to understand. But just why is it important to know the calculations? And all of that. It's not just to do the mitzvah. He's going to say now that it's important to be able to know all of this stuff to know God. Because by knowing how the world works, I know God because God, the world is what God created. And through that, I get to know him. Yes, but there's things that we know about the world that they didn't, that they were wrong about, that we're right about. And that's important to know as well. Right? All of these things about the moon and the stars, the new moon, and all of that, one cannot know. And now the Ibn Ezra is moving into uh, general knowledge, right? So he spoke about the basic words and, and scriptural structures. He spoke about grammar. He spoke about Tanakh. He spoke about Talmud. And now he's saying, even the stuff in the Talmud, you cannot learn Masechet Rosh Hashanah unless you know the astronomy. Because that's what the whole thing deals with in a tremendous part of it. And that's very important. You need to know the astronomical movements of these, of these bodies. Now, if you're going to do astronomy, you need to know geometry. That's important. Because again, it is a, a prerequisite to be able to understand this element of knowledge properly. 
his understanding of the astrology was incorrect. But everybody's was. Everybody's was. It wasn't just Ibn Ezra's. No, I understand that. How would it be that that they were, that he was able to learn the, the second Rosh Hashanah properly? Because the maths worked. Their mathematics worked on the model that they had. They were just extremely complex mathematics. And what Copernicus realized was that if you just change the structure, the mathematics becomes so elegant. And then we're trying to compensate with the mathematics that we had then, right, with these problems of structure that we didn't understand. That worked within the system. Yeah, they worked within correct. The so you need to know uh, geometry. When you know astronomy, you will know God. Says the Lebanese. Okay. Well, that's what the says. Achamim said, if you're not studying astronomy and you don't know about this stuff, you did not look at what God made. You have not paid attention to what God has made. Now, again, I say, this may be so, but in our day, this, this falls terribly short. We know more about the universe in our general knowledge. Again, I'm not talking about the complicated, complicated and intricate calculations. I'm talking about our entire a, a framework and model of the universe. We know more about it than they ever did. Because again, what they were looking at was only uh, mechanics. They had no clue what a star was. They just didn't know. How could they? They had no idea what light was. You understand, this is all pre-Newtonian, right? I mean, Newton changed everything. We don't appreciate the degree to which Newton literally recreated the entire universe. There is a world pre-Newton and after. The two do not connect. Yeah? Um, do we really know God better now? Simply because we understand the science and mechanics? It's not a question of knowing God better or worse, because that's all they had. And so they were able to know whatever it was that they were able to know. As a society, do we have the capacity of better understanding? Yes. But their connection to the world was deep and intricate because of the way that they studied. They went out of their way to do it. And it's very likely that that was functional. Right? That was important. What I'm saying is, is that this principle is problematic. In other words, for the Ibn Ezra, I say, you want to know God, study astronomy. Is missing. It's missing the, the the goal, right? You know, you do that, and you don't study evolutionary biology, and you don't study physics, and you don't study. I don't know, okay, well, I mean, you know, you're going to be a, an 11th century mind, and in the 21st century, an 11th century mind cannot know God. In the 11th century, where that's all that God is revealing, well, then that's all you've got to know, right? So, do we know more or less? It's a difficult question to answer because it's relative. Right? It's relative. But it all depends on, on, uh, on what the circumstances. So that's why I'm, I'm pointing that out. Okay. If you don't know geography, of course, uh, sorry, geography. if you don't know geometry, 
you can't understand the whole sugya and Aruvina talks about Tukum Shabbat, in which they measure. Gam also this we don't have, so we don't know what it is. Right? There's a there's a drash that says. In Teilim, David Amelech says five times, Barachi Nafshiyat Adunai. And so the Hachimim says, he said it five times. That means that there are five ways that Nafshi, my Nefesh, knows God or is compared to God. It's all mashal because nothing compares to God. Yeah? And so, how, in the manners that they say that it compares, you can't really understand it unless you start to study the nature of the human soul. Well, how do you study the nature of the human soul? Well, you study human beings. That's what you gotta do, right? If you don't know the nature of human of the human condition, which essentially is what the Chokmata Nefesh is, because remember the difference between an animal and a human being is our minds. So you need to be able to study how do humans think, how do humans engage. And the truth of the matter is the, the entire Talmud is replete with this. I mean, 90% of the gezerot that the Achami make is only based on your psychology. What are you going to think? Don't do this. We're worried what you're going to think or what other people will think. How do I know what people think? Well, we know what people think. We pay a tremendous amount of attention. Yeah. So it's like, you know, rudimentary psychology. We are light years ahead today. Yeah. And so I saw the book translated this as psychology. I don't like when it translates things that way. When it translates in time, it didn't exist. A, a systematic study you know, a parascientific study of the human mind and its functions did not exist in this time. So we read that and we think, oh, that's what he's talking about. Yeah? I'm not, that's not to say that it's not important to study psychology, but don't tell me that that's what the Ibn Ezra was saying. Yeah? Ibn Ezra was saying it's important to study the human condition and the human mind and thinking. It is absolutely today very important to study psychology to whatever degree that you can as a general element. Unless, of course, you want to specialize in that. You can't understand the human condition if you don't understand the world in which the human lives. Because the human is not some vacuum, right? He's not living in some vacuum outside of the environment. The more you understand the world, the more you understand the human animal. Because it's symbiotic. So that's very important. It's very important to study logic as well, because if you don't know how to think, you don't know think. You're not able to think. Just because you think doesn't mean that you think correctly. So learn how to think correctly. That's that. Of course, I mean, that is the balance of all wisdom. You need to know how to approach the wisdom appropriately. And those who came before us warned us already. It's very important. It's a different language than most of the Perkabot has today. Most of the Perkabot has know what to answer to here he's quoting it as it's also in Sanhedrin sit on it take time on being able to answer somebody who is a disbeliever or a heretic what does that have to do with the logic everybody thinks what does that mean that means I have to be able to understand what they're saying and be able to have the argument set to be able it has to do with logic because he basically believed that you could think logically, systematically, appropriately, you could deal with the misconceptions that people had. 
Because the likelihood is that they had those misconceptions because they didn't think logically. And they didn't have belief. And that was it. All right, how are we doing? I don't know. Do you want to go through the end? I don't know what you want to do. So. I'm happy to continue. That's up to you. I, I feel like I'm holding people hostage. Here. Not that you're misbehaving. You're acting so nicely. Thank you. Wonderful. Oh. Wait, 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 wait. Are we okay to continue? Are we? I don't know. They'd be, they'd be afraid. You have a show of hands? Should I close my eyes? <laughs> I don't want to hold people hostage. Yeah, I mean, if you need to leave, by all means. Absolutely. Yeah, even you. Even you. If you need to walk through everybody in the middle, it's fine. Yes. What's the question? The question is, based on what you're saying, out of, and it's, it's obvious, the psychology of today and our knowledge of these areas is, is far superior to the, that which would have been in the time of the Ibn Ezra. Absolutely. So the leaders of our generation today would surely have a better understanding of what society or Jewish society needs for... If they knew these things, if they knew these things, I mean, if they studied these things today, if they studied yeah. psychology, in which case they would be better placed to be able to make those kids absolutely so better place than than to people in the time of Ibn Ezra. Just yeah, like absolutely. Saying, yeah, that the Torah says. The Torah tells us that. The Torah says you have to listen to the people that are in your generation. You are missing one key component. If you're talking about legislation, right, there are, there are logistical problems with new legislation, which we're not going to get into today. But yes, absolutely, on all other matters, there's no question about the fact that you need to look to contemporaries that are aware of these issues and deal with them. No question about it. There's many, many things that the Hachamim say that just to see on face value, we just don't get without being able to know other things or other wisdom to be other aspects of knowledge that gives us an understanding where they might have come to these things with. Like, for example, they say, <laughs> a person is up all night. <laughs> right? He's taking his life into his hands. Shouldn't spend all night awake. Or they say, <laughs> if you've left water uncovered all night, don't drink it. This all has to do with the way the world works. That's Rebbein Ezra's uh, opinion. And not only that, there's a whole thing about Shedim. You know, about the, going away at night, walking alone at night, and so on and so forth. That all has to do with astronomy. More likely astrology. Right? Because they didn't believe that there was a very big difference between astronomy and astrology. So on the one hand, the Ibn Ezra did not like the belief in Shadim, demons and so on and so forth. But he didn't have a problem believing that the stars influenced the way that things ran in the world. Right? And so there's a very blurry line between astrology and astronomy, as far as the medieval intellectual mind was concerned. And that has to do with that. Also, this whole parable that the Hakamim give that the Moon complained about the sun and all of that. That all has to do with astronomical placements and functions and so on and so forth. And so you better understand the meaning of the Hachamim when you have better understanding of the astronomical nature of things. Because you realize, for example, that even though the sun in reality is much larger than the moon by many orders, from Earth they're the same size. Which is why it causes And yet there's this whole conflict of which is greater and which is smaller. Otherwise, we wouldn't have solar eclipses that are so exciting. 
right? וככה דברים רבים במקרא צריכים פירוש, כמו שהזכיר קהלת ארבעה שרשים שהן שמיים וארץ ורוח המים. אני גוסו הולדינג אורי, אוסו, אני חושב שזה קומפליטי אירוע. אני קומפליטי אירוע, אני חושב שזה קומפליטי אירוע. There was a belief that the all of matter, right, was based in four fundamental substances that is very, Pluto, is very uh, platonic, you know, the idea, but that there were four basic substances that, be, that were the, the, the uh, foundation, foundational elements for all of matter, and their configurations and interactions created all of the matter that we know, and their fire, uh, wind, earth, water, right? So he goes through that. He says, you need to understand these things and how they work. Karam Bamar, it's the same thing. Right? You have to understand these things and how they work. These are the fundamental elements. And if you don't understand the nature of these fundamental elements, you won't understand all of these pisukim. And he goes through a whole bunch of pisukim and all of the sefarim that deal with these fundamental elements, which I'm not going to read through right now because we're late on that. But you can read through them again. It's all over. Teilim. Kohelet, Mishle, Yov, and so on and so forth. Zayn. Hachme ha-Talmud bedorenu al derachim rabbim. Now, it's true also that when we get to the Talmud, there are many ways that people study Talmud, as I said before. Now he wants to unpack that a bit. Yeshoge boladat ha-Asur ha-Mutar. Some study Talmud to know halakha. Right? What is Mutar and what is Asur? Just as our fathers that said in Sadiqim, meaning our righteous forefathers taught us, right? They taught us this is how we do, and this is the way that we do. And then there are some who want to study the Talmud for the Drash, the Midrashim that are in the Talmud. As a matter of fact, if they study it really well, they can make their own Midrashim. Because the Ibn Ezra elsewhere criticizes Hachamim who wrote new Midrashim but we're not at all different than the old Midrashim. He said, if you're writing Midrashim that basically do the same thing as the old Midrashim, why are you writing new Midrashim? But he believes that you should have new Midrashim because essentially what the Midrashim are, are glosses into thought about the nature of the Mikra and what it is it's trying to teach us. And the Hachamim used Midrashim to encode ideas that are quite deep and developed philosophically but didn't want to speak them outright. And so they put them out in parables. And so it's wonderful. If you can craft a parable in order to be able, well, good. They also try to understand all of the, all of the words and their, their, their spellings and how it is that they're put together because maybe we learn something from this. What does it mean? It means that they start to pay very, very, very close attention to the spelling of words and specific words and how it is they're used, because the Talmud sometimes will pay attention to that, but the Talmud does that in a utilitarian way. Right? The Talmud uses that as a mode to develop the rhetoric, whereas they think that this is inherent. People might study Talmud and think that this is inherent in the words. And he says, Atau Markla. He goes, now, now I want to give you a principle, which is tremendous, because any time that a hacham gives us a principle, that's something that we can use to be able to understand a tremendous amount of information. And here the Ibn Ezra himself is saying, I'm going to now teach you a principle. And he says the following thing, which is quite astonishing. He says, The Nebi'im were not meticulous about the specific word usage when they wrote. 
especially when they would change from one word to the next that were essentially synonyms. So oftentimes you will see synonyms used, but don't make the mistake of thinking necessarily that the shift of word to using its synonym has a tremendous amount of meaning and that we have to pause on that and try and understand the whole lesson that comes from it. Rather, what they, what they were interested in the Nebi'im was the meaning and not the specific word usage, per se. And it could be that a Navi would use a word because it just sounded better or it was more poetic. This is what they wanted to do. Okay. What is the main aspect of all of this? The meaning. Like Eliezer, the, the right? The Torah tells us the story and then Eliezer recounts the story. And the Torah says, Hagmi'ini, Ma'im, right? give me water. And when Eliezer was taking, he said, Hashkini. And so instead of Hagmi'ini, he said, Hashkini. And a person read that and say, Oh my God, he said, Hashkini. Let's just say, Hagmi'ini. What does that mean? Yeah. Now, it's possible that you can create some kind of nice uh, idea on that. But what Eben Ezra is saying is, be careful not to think necessarily that the shift in wording over there is holding some deep secrets of the Torah. It's just rhetoric. It's language. And that is why, by the way, it's specifically because of these kinds of things. The Hachamim say, Torah uses human language. And uh, redundancies, for example, are just redundancies. So the Hachamim give an example of Torah It may say, uh, you know, when he calls to me, and it says, it uses a double, right? I will indeed listen. I will surely listen. Well, why do human beings do that? Why do they double up words like that? They want to emphasize them. And what Hachamim are saying is, when the Torah does that, don't think that there's any more in that than just the way that human beings talk. Why? Because Dibra Torah comes from man. And so it's human language. Yeah. The Ibn Ezra elsewhere is critical of Hachamim use words and he says they use these words they think they're synonymous and if they really knew what they meant they'd realize they weren't synonyms and they just used the words yeah. they wanted to say i'm not sure this is on right so, right but that's poetry and what is it why is it why is it, why is it functional in poetry he's critical of it he's poetry. critical because the in poetry i'm trying to convey a a first of all i'm trying to convey some nuance Right, because the beauty is in the formation of the words. So what he's saying in the prose of Torah, right? Because he's not saying the Torah is poetry. I mean, we do talk about the Torah like that. We call it a shira, but that's also a drasha. But he's saying, look, when I'm speaking prose and I'm talking about feeding the camels, and I'm using a synonym for feeding the camels, don't go nuts on that. But yes, that there are certain situations in which I may be using poet poetic uh, uh, terminology, and every word is packed with meaning, which is what the nature of poetry is very often. Yeah? And that's why the Beneza is saying, you don't know how to write poetry, which you don't want the Beneza telling you you don't know how to write poetry. Because when the Beneza tells you, which he did to Rabbi Nutan. He did this to Rabbi Nutan. Right? It's a Mizorah that we have, we have the you know, evidence. We believe that it was a letter to Rabbi Nutan because Rabbi Nutan wrote to the Ibn Ezra, uh, poet, poetry. And he said, <laughs> He said, why isn't Ashkenazi trying to write poetry? Don't do that. Yeah. Anyway, so do you understand? I, well, I think that. 
What is it? And he gives a whole bunch of other examples over here. So that my soul should bless you, whereas Rivka said, I will bless you. And in the halom of Paro, you fought Mar'en one, and then you fought Tar in another. Not necessarily a big difference. Even though we do, we will often do this in terms of our own glosses. But it's different to do it in terms of our own glosses and say, no, Torah, it's because you must figure something out over here, and it's a riddle. It's not a riddle. It's not a riddle. Right? Whereas Bilam himself said Kabali. So instead of Ara, he used the word Kabali. Again, all synonyms. Okay? Now he gives more examples. I'm skipping these because of time. It goes all the way down, so on and so forth. And he says, He goes, A person who really understands will get what I'm saying. Yeah. What I find quite interesting is that saying essentially that the words themselves, it sounds like he's saying the words themselves don't come from, from God. It's the Navi choosing the word and how to portray the message that God gave them. In the majority of Nebuah, that is true, except for the Torah. And notice that the examples that he used in Torah were quotations of people's regular speech. Ooh. Right? So, so in Yeshaya, yes, Yeshaya was a tremendous, uh, you know, uh, he was a master of words. The wording of, and that's why you see there is different, the nature of Yirmiyah's language is different than Yehazkel's language. So the, the examples you're giving Torah here, you're saying a different why? Because, because, they, yeah. because he's quoting people's conversation. It's the words that people used. What did Eli say? What did Rivka and Yishak say? What did Parao say? So, okay. so to Moshe Rabbeinu, he still, he still holds. Right. There's one where he gives, there's one where he gives, where where he's saying, HaKadosh who did that. But it's not groundbreaking. It could very well be that the reason that it was done is because the second time around, when it was a whole new cohort of Israel, that word was a word that they were used to hearing. It's possible. Again, that's the hachamim using the nuance for drash. He's talking about pshat. So, Ken? Ken? Go for it. Okay. Now, there are some people that study Talmud in order to be able to have a one-up on their friends so that they're considered, you know, the, the intelligent ones. Like, they're the scholars. And that's why they learn the Talmud. And therefore, they make sure to spend most of their time studying Seder Nizikin, which is the Baba Metzian, Baba Batran, Baba Kama, because those are very, you know, intricate uh, elements of law. They're also judicial in nature, so you have to judge between people, which gives you even a, a, another step up, which is which is exciting. And he's and he loves the fact that he is able to now use his wisdom to adjudicate cases that are brought before him by people. So he has a certain amount of uh, authority and uh, you know power. He goes, but I would like to point out that if Israel were actually tzaddikim and they were doing what they were supposed to, we wouldn't need Seder Nezikim. Seder Nezikim is all good to see you, gentlemen. Thank you so much. So he says, he's saying Seder Nezikim, remember, all of it in its entirety is, the, is to deal with the failures of human beings and the criminality of human beings. So what you're doing, you're essentially studying and putting yourself into a position where you want to be able to deal with the criminals. Okay, good. Not only that, this is important. There are mitzvot that are not daily obligations on all of us. 
And he gives fantastic examples. He goes, it's, you need one person to be able to do this or, or a very small number of people that need to perform these particular mitzvot. And they fulfill for everybody what it is that's needed. Like shofar. Everybody's bringing a shofar. You know, one guy who hopefully knows how to build a shofar. And he builds a shofar. On Rosh Hashanah Kippur. And the Olat Tamid, right? The one korban or the two korbanot that were brought daily. Not everybody was doing that. You had the Kohen who did it, and that was it. And the Musafin, Parashat Hakel. Hakel, you just had to show up. The king did everything. The Kohen Gadol and Kippur did everything. Okay, so there's plenty of stuff that you need one expert to be able to know how to do this. You don't need to know this. Not you. And therefore, you need one expert to deal with the issues that are present for mass, masses of people. And just recognize that when you're questioning what it is that you should learn. Which according to Ibn Ezra, there's no question about the fact that if you're studying Talmud for the first time, or if you're just setting time to study Talmud, Serir Nizikin is not the one to choose. Now this is his, he's closing here. Okay. And again, he's coming back to his, to his original point, right? So he's coming to the reason why he's writing all of this. A human being must refine himself or herself. A human being must enhance and better oneself. That's our goal. And to recognize the commandments of God who created everything. And you work with all you've got to understand what he's done. What he's made. And then you will know God. You'll know your creator. If you study what he created, you'll know the creator. And that means as Moshe said, He said to God, show me your ways and I will know you. And what is your ways? The Ibn Ezra here is saying over here before the Rambam. Rambam writes this much more explicitly in the Morina Bukhi. And it's possible that this was teaching in Sfarad, perhaps. Or he saw this, Sefer Yesod Mora. But he uses Pasuk and when Moshe says, he's asking, I want to know your ways, which means how, what's the nature of the world? That's what it means. And once you know God, then you find favor in his eyes. Meaning, in order to find favor in God's eyes, you need to know him. How do I know that? Because that's what Moshe says. So I can find favor in your eyes. says it explicitly. Who says, a hacham should never be feel praiseworthy because of his wisdom, nor should an authority figure feel praiseworthy because of their authority. A Kadosh Baruch who takes care of all of that will build you up, put you down, you go senile, it's not a big deal. The only thing that a person should have praise for, should feel that they've achieved something with, is what kind of wisdom, what kind of knowledge is something that person genuinely feel I've done something? To know me, says HaKadosh And that's uh, Harambam brings another pasuk in, in uh, Yoshe Beset Arayon, Teilim 
Tzadi Alef, 91, where it says, Asagebehu, Agadosh Baruch says, I'll protect him. Why? Ki Shemi, he knows my name. He knows who I am. And the Rambam says, doesn't say I'm going to protect him because he fasts, or because he, you know, he, he, he goes the extra mile. No, because he knows me. And therefore I know him, and I'm going to protect him. He brings pasuk after pasuk after pasuk that knowing God is the is the is the name of the game over here. And he says at the end a little bit about Maasim Rkava and Shiur Koma, which is esoterics, right? Metaphysics. And he says, as far as the metaphysics are concerned, there's a Sefer Yehud which is really not good. It uh, doesn't have it down very well, he says. Yeah. And he says, and also uh, there's uh, the there's uh, Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon. And he says, Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon wrote Emunot Vedeot. I'm shortening over here. He says, Rabbeinu Sa'ad Yagon wrote Emunot Vedeot. Yesh Bo There are some really valuable chapters in that. And then there are some chapters where it's hard to measure what he's saying. Yeah, at best. And then he says, He goes, now that I've spoken all of this to you, I can talk to you about the mitzvot. Does anybody need to say Kaddish? No, I'll say Good night, everybody on on uh, Zoom. Thanks for tuning in.